Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The 2004 foreshore and seabed legislation is considered to be the most grievous treaty breach of the modern era. It's strained long-standing political relationships. Labour's Māori MPs torn between their party and their people. But one politician claimed the political high ground. She'd entered Parliament in 1996 as a mid-ranking Labour list MP, but 18 years later, the Honourable Dame Tariana Turia left as a political matriarch. Kia ora. I'm Morgan Godfrey. I'm a blogger, writer and commentator, and I'm fascinated by New Zealand politics. Now, I'm speaking with former Māori MPs in Mātangirea, Parliament's historic Māori Affairs Committee room. I want to understand their place in our history and what we can learn from their political legacies. This is Mātangirea. Dame Tariana Turia was a Labour Party MP from 1996 to 2002 and a Māori Party MP and co-leader from 2004 to 2014. She has served as Associate Minister of Māori Affairs, Social Services and Employment, Health, Housing and Corrections, before gaining full ministerial rank as Minister for the Community and Voluntary Sector. She was also the Minister responsible for Whānau Order. I belong to four iwi, so Whanganui, Ngā Wairaki Ngāti Apa, Taranaki me Ngāti Tū Waritoa. And I'm really proud to have had those iwi as my toto, my awa, yeah, I am. I wanted to ask you first, just to take us back, because I have very clear in my mind this beautiful quote of yours about your identity. One foot in the river, one foot in the land, this is who I am. Can you describe that for me and, and explain it? Well, I guess that I grew up um, knowing my connection to the whenua, and I don't think that I truly understood as a child our connection to the awa. It was only as I grew up that I began to listen to the old people talking and they always talked about the river as being the essence of who we were, that it flowed through our veins. That, more than anything, was about who we were as a people. And it resonated with me. Um, I was probably a teenager at that time, but um, you kind of always understand your connections to the whenua, but often you don't understand that most important connection, and that is your toto, mm. the river that flows through your veins. And you were raised by the old people, is that right? Yes, I was. I was. I was raised by my aunties and my uncle at Pūtiki, about 200 yards from the river, and raised in quite a strict 
environment, but a loving, very loving environment. And, you know, essentially all our lives we were taught right from wrong. Um, I remember an incident, and I, I remember it so well, about stealing. And I remember finding a 10 cent coin in one of the bedrooms as I was helping clean. And I took it and I took it to the shop, which was just across the road, and bought some lollies. And the kids and I, my cousins and I, we were sitting on the veranda eating the lollies and out comes my auntie Y. She said, well, where did you get the money from? And I said, I found it. She said, did you think it was yours? Did you know it was yours? I said, no, I knew it wasn't mine. And she said, so why did you spend it? I thought, my God. And she said, you know, that is stealing. When you knowingly take something, use it, knowing that it's not yours. And I recall running down to my Auntie Pie, who lived next door, and telling her that she'd accused me of being a thief. <laughs> she was quite <laughs> horrified, actually. <laughs> But it was a really good lesson mm. because I, I remembered that all of my life. Don't take things and think that you can use them for yourself. Mm. Mm. Auntie Y was a formidable figure for you too and a figure Absolutely. that comes through of, of someone with huge dignity. Absolutely. Reading your uh, biography, she comes through as someone with huge dignity and she shaped a lot of your politics as well, Absolutely. didn't she? Absolutely except that she was a National Party supporter. <laughs> and, um, but it was really the politics of knowing what you stood for, mm. of being strong and valuing who you were and your responsibilities back to your own people. She never really talked about National Labour, the others. In fact, Labour uh, would have featured more strongly because our uncles and our auntie, Iriaka, Machu, Tokauru were all members of parliament and so Wakapapa was very important to those old people. So we did grow up uh, knowing our Wakapapa connections but we also grew up with a strong philosophy about right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up as well feeling maybe as if you were being trained for a leadership role? One of the stories that really comes through strongly about you, Auntie Wai, that you've told is when she went out, you know, almost every week to Karanga to mm. her tipuna asking for forgiveness because the land had been lost. Was that quite formative for you too? Oh, look, when it was her, it was her grandmother who took them by the hands and took them around the lands after the land had been sold. That absolutely devastated me mm. to think of our queer calling to the tūpuna to forgive them. That, that definitely resonated very strongly with me. Mm. What was it like as well growing up, you know, close to Anandatana Pā? Um, well, it was home. And because our families were all part of the Maramatanga, my mother's sister was married to Tokuru. Mm. Um, the, our waka papa ties are strong, Rangi Waka Turia and Tai Tapu, our brother and sister, and we come off Rangi Waka Turia and the Ratana family come off Tai Tapu. So we always had those very strong waka papa connections and, of course, uh, absolute faith in the maramatanga. Mm -hmm. There's a story as well that, I, that I'm quite interested in 
when the Māori Land March in 1975 came through Ratanapā, you were there at the time, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was. And um, I think that my politics, in a way, um, were starting to come through, you know. Um, I didn't really think about a government or the kind of things that a government did. Uh, we were brought up just to do what we knew to be right for us as Wano. Um, and that it didn't matter what the government did. Yes, so that was probably my very first experience of seeing our people um, absolutely take some action over the lands. And I think up to that point, I didn't really realise what had happened to us as a people in terms of our land loss. I think that highlighted it to me. Mm. And, um, yeah, I I felt really quite deeply about that. Mm. Mm. It was a confronting time, wasn't it, in the 1970s and 1980s? Mm. Not necessarily because these grievances were coming to the fore, but that the rest of the country was finally finding out that the grievances exist. You know, well, how, did, you know how did that affect you? Did that, did that push you to say, you know, I'm going to you know, take this issue by the horns? Or were you, was that still a learning period for you? I, th- I think the 70s particularly was a learning time for me. Um, I began to read quite a lot at that time, Um, began to realise how painful our history had been. I felt very angry, and I felt very angry about the way in which the state minimised those significant issues. I come from a hapu where all of the previous generation, my mother's generation, never spoke the reo again, where they had been hit at school, and um, as a result, all of my generation never had the real, and I feel, I have to say, quite a lot of pain over that. Mm, mm. Mm. Did you realise at the time when you were growing up, or did that pain not emerge until later in life when you maybe realised, oh, this is what we've lost? I think that I realised it more uh, when I had my children and when we rebuilt our marae. And then, you know, my mother said she couldn't karanga. My mother said she couldn't speak. Um, up to then, we'd taken it all for granted that they could. Mm. And, but my auntie Wai and auntie Pai, of course, always spoke in te reo, to each other, to family. In 1995, Whanganui became a flashpoint for historical land grievances. Motua Garden was a memorial to the Crown's subjugation of mana whenua. Amid growing discontent, mana whenua decided to repossess Pākaitore, occupying it for 79 days. Turia was at the forefront. Can we jump ahead to Pākaitore, which was a year before you entered Parliament? Did you have a sense at that time when you were at the occupation that you were going to Parliament? No. No, I don't think Parliament was ever in the forefront of my thinking, to be honest. But, um, you know, I'd always been politically active at home. Sister Margareta, one of the nuns from home, we ran decol courses amongst our families up and down the river. And, of course, when Pākai Tori came along, I think that that's what drove a lot of our people to come to, mm. that they'd had that opportunity to learn 
about ourselves as a people, what had happened to us, and so they came. And um, I, I found that to be one of the most important times in my life because I saw our rangatahi come to Pākai Ture, uh, participate in the essence of being Māori, which I don't believe many of them had. Mm. You know, hardly any of them went to the marae, and when they did go to the marae, their job was in the kitchen. They very rarely ever had a say politically, whereas at Pākai Ture, uh, we encouraged them to speak, to speak up at night, first thing in the morning. We had sessions which, you know, which engaged them so that we knew that they understood why they were there and what they needed to do to protect each other, mm. but more importantly, to protect our kaumatu and kuia. Was it a case then that you got on the Labour list a year later by accident, or were the people there at Pākai Tore saying, Tariana, you have to do this for us? Oh, definitely our old people and our young ones wanted me to go to Parliament, and it did come through, uh, Pākai Tore mainly. I must admit, I was surprised that I got so high on the Labour list because I wasn't an active supporter. I think I was 21. Mm. And you stood for Te Taiho Aru three years later? I stood for Te Taiho Aru at least twice, maybe, yeah, at least twice. Mm. Never got it, never got the seat. And then um, the third time when... Um, Helen asked me if I was going to stand. I said, no, I'm not going to stand and allow the processes of the party to deny me because I think they saw me as a risk. So I wasn't ever going to get the support of, um, in the party of those who were at the head of the party at that time. What was your relationship with Helen Clark like at that point? I, th I think it was good. Mm. I had huge regard for Helen. Um, I liked her leadership style, and I did believe in my heart that she wanted what was right for us. So it was quite nerve-shattering when it turned mm. out that it wasn't. Mm. 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 And that first term when Labour was in government, 1999 to 2002, and you eventually became a minister, did you feel empowered that term? Oh, look, I was terrified to <laughs> be to be honest, I recall being asked to come down to Wellington um, to be told that they were considering me for ministerial and I told them that um, I wasn't sure whether it was for me. Um, I wouldn't want to let our people down. I didn't want to get into a position where I didn't understand it and didn't know really what I would have been doing and that I would need to go home and talk to the old people and talk to my family, which is what I did. And I recall at the time um, Helen saying to me, you'd be the only one that would say no first. <laughs> but I, I, I thought I should. I, mm. I, I mean, I really felt that I should because I, I honestly didn't feel that I knew enough. Mm. I, know, I knew our people, yeah. but I didn't know this place. Mm. Mm. And the old people gave you back in. They backed you yes. to do it. Yes, they did. Mm. I wonder if that point were the cracks showing, like ditching, closing the gaps... Was Māori policy getting frustrated? Did you have a sense then? I, I did feel frustrated with the whole Māori policy process, I would have to say. I felt that it wasn't actually driven by the Māori caucus, mm. that there was too much interference from others. And um, 
Yeah, and, and I think I got my first real sense of others determining what was best for us. So within labour, it was very powerful mm. that um, our voices, I believe, were subdued by others. In 2003, the relationship between Labour and its Māori MPs was put to the test. A landmark decision by the Court of Appeal ruled the definition of Māori land did not exclude the foreshore and seabed. Māori property rights to it had not been extinguished, and the extent of those rights could be tested in the Māori Land Court. When the Ngāti decision came out of the courts, did you realise at the time that it would be a historic moment? Well, I certainly knew it was going to become a moment that would define those of us who were tangata when we were in Parliament. I knew that uh, people would have to be prepared to either stand with our people or stand against them. I wasn't prepared to stand against them. Mm, mm, mm. And that's right. And you went home too, didn't you, when the decision yep. came, what yep. way am I going to vote on the foreshore and CBD yep. went home? Absolutely, I did. About 300 people turned up mm. to the hui. Um, and th- they were very clear. In my whole electorate, I only got one email that I recall that asked me to please vote with it because they didn't want me to get kicked out. (laughs) Yeah, I only got one email telling me that. The rest of them said Mm. to me, no, you know, we have to stand up for what we believe and that's why you're there. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. It's it's an incredible contrast on one side, Māori almost entirely back in your position, but then on the other side, the Labour Party appearing to come down pretty hard on you. What kind of personal pressure were they putting under you? Was Helen Clark on the phone? Was she sending the the staff down to talk to you? All of those things. Mm. Mm. What kind of toll did it take? Because of the way that I'd been brought up, that if you knew that something was right, that that's what should drive you. Mm. In my heart of hearts, I knew that the only decision that I could make would be to leave. And um, I also knew that I would not be able to fulfil the desires of our people if I just sat there and accepted that that was an okay thing to do. It felt like a, a really pivotal moment in all of our lives and I thought, gosh, I was so disappointed, I have to say, in my colleagues in Parikura. I'd been close to Parikura for years and years. I was devastated when they decided to stay because I really and truly believed that had we all stood by what we'd decided, which was to go to Labour and say to them, we will step outside of the party, but we will go into a coalition with you, which wouldn't accept it. And pretty sadly, I think a lot of pressure was put on to the others to stay. They were given ministerials. Um, yeah, and, and I think too that we qu- didn't quite have the confidence in ourselves, you know, to make that stand, to, um, to believe that we could come back in mm-hmm. as an independent entity. And yet when I think back over that time, I know in my heart that it would have been the beginning of Māori, true Māori politics 
mm. in this country. Mm. I do believe that. Mm. Because the people who were there at that time were all quite strong people. Yep, definitely. Mm. Does that show, you know, the suffocating power, not necessarily of any particular government, but of the Crown, that they could do that to those other Māori MPs, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Grind them down like that? I, absolutely. And I don't, I, I never ever held it against them because I understood the machinery of this place and um, knew that uh, it, it would be the most significant move ever by our people in Parliament. I knew that. And I wasn't sure whether we were all brave enough. Mm. I think that luckily for me, I didn't care if I got back in or not because that can be a big motivating factor. I didn't care. And when um, Archie Tairo, my cousin, he said to me, he talked to me about Machu and how disappointed they were when Machu um, formed Manamotuhake and the people didn't vote for him. They went back to Labour. And Archie said to me, you know, the same thing could happen to you. And I said, that's true, but I don't care. Being in Parliament is only one part of being political. I've always believed that politically you can do as much outside of Parliament as you can inside, but the difference of being inside is that you have the opportunity to talk to the policy makers, to those who make the decisions. You, you form a relationship with them. What was it like when the Hikoi arrived, over 20,000 people, and there's a beautiful portrait of you at the front of that hikoi body, the young, oh the, young, the young kids carrying it forward. How did that feel when you saw that? I was so excited for our people that they had faith in themselves, that they knew that this was wrong for them. I was, I was extremely proud of them. I think that's what I felt more than anything, was a pride in knowing that we can stand up and be counted, and we could. Did you know at that point too that not only were you on the right side of this issue, but you're going to be returned on this issue as well? So a few months later in the by-election, 94%? Mm. Yeah. I, um, I don't think I thought that far ahead. I, I wasn't thinking about uh, myself. I was just so happy that we as a people could show this country that you will not do this to us and think that it's okay. Because I think it rattled a few cupboards in our homes, because a lot of us have intermarried. And I think it did. I think it brought a lot of sadness and sorrow um, to relationships mm. at that time. Mm. Mm. That day the Hikoi arrived, did it remind you of the 1975 landmarks that you'd yes. seen? Yes, yes. Yes, it did. And, and I felt, like I did back then, how proud I was of us as a people, that when it mattered most, we were prepared to come here and confront the state about what they were doing. It's interesting. It's one of the, you know, one of the few issues that unifies most Māori or nearly all Māori, and it's always land, isn't it? Yes. It's always land. Well, because they've stolen so much of our land. I mean, when you look back into our history and know today that, you know, we're, what, 6% of the land, you know, we're landless. 
um, that when the settlements go through, you know, um, in the case of my Ngāwairiki Ngāti upside, 1% of what was taken from us, you know, it puts it all into context, I think. Mm. And uh, more and more, I think that our people are beginning to say, um, these are not settlements. They're not. Mm. You can't settle at that rate and imagine that something's not going to happen. Some, you know, someone's not going to come back. I, I believe that our children will come back, whether the government makes you sign something to say you won't or not. The fact of it is they were immoral mm. in getting our people to sign up to those settlements. Mm. Mm. I want to ask about the Māori Party. At that point, after the hikoi, were people approaching you to say, we need an independent kaupapa Māori Party? Yep, yep, they did. And I wasn't sure, really, if I'm being honest about that, because I suppose I knew in the end we'd be competing against our own. Yeah, so I, did fi I didn't find it easy. The Māori Party launched in July 2004, and Turia romped home in the Te Taihauaudu by-election. The next year she was joined by three more Māori Party MPs, Dr Peter Sharples, Hone Harawira, and Te Ururo Flavel. I wanted to ask about 2005 because you returned in the by-election in 2004 with an overwhelming mandate, but you were the sole MP until that 2005 election. I just want to ask what it felt like to have four other Māori MPs join you that oh, year. It was amazing. I, I was really thrilled because I, I was incredibly lonely. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the people who had been the closest to me were in the Labour caucus and the only person who ever spoke to me was John Tummyhitty. He asked me if I was okay. I almost broke down and wept, to be honest, but I so appreciated that he cared enough. You know, that, that those um, ties to the essence of who we were as Māori were more important than sitting wahangu and saying nothing to me. I did find that really hard. But when the others came in, it was... You know, it was really with a lot of jubilation because it wasn't for me about the Māori Party and it never has been about the Māori Party. This has been about a restoration of faith in ourselves as a people. That's how I saw it. Why do you think there was that reluctance on the part of those other Labour Māori MPs to see how you were and to ask? Actually, I'm lying. Mahara did speak to me as well. I think, um, you know, that, that I actually believe that they all struggled with the decision that they made. And I think with me not being in their caucus and sitting outside of Labour, I think it highlighted uh, what they had done to the rest of the country. And I just think that they were incredibly uncomfortable. How could they not be? I mean, I don't think any of them thought this is the greatest thing we've ever done and it's the right thing. I don't believe that because it wasn't. Mm. And the Māori, you were vindicated and the Māori Party was vindicated at that election when, mm. the, when you had five MPs. Mm. And it was a heavyweight caucus as well. Dr. Yep. Peter Sharples, yep. Tūrero Flavel, Honi Harawira, uh, yep. Hui Katini eventually yep. came through they as well. They were wonderful. Mm. Mm. Did, it feel, did it feel like you, had, you, know, you finally had that kaupapa Māori power to exercise? Well, I'm always conscious of how this place operates 
and it operates on numbers. So, you know, you, you had to form a relationship with um, others. Labour was in at that point and they would not have a relationship with us even though Matua Whatarangi came down to see them. Uh, they said no. So, yeah, that was hard. That was hard. But <clears throat> I think that um, we did the best that we could with what we had, and that's all you can do. But one of the things that he always told us was that it didn't matter who the government was, that our job was to get alongside of them and to do the very best that we could for our people. Whether we liked them or not, that wasn't what we were here for. We were here to get the best opportunities for our people that we could. So we never ever thought about, is it Labour or is it National? Even though I know that Labour ran that line, that we were basically supporters of National. Uh, the fact of it is we were supportive of whoever the government was at that time. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to get anything for our people. A waste of time being here, which is what Matua Whatarangi Winiata told us. You can't be there and do nothing, get nothing. Did you have a sense that day in 2008 when you were in this room in Matangi Dea signing that agreement, the Confidence and Supply Agreement with the National Party, did you have a sense of what the next three years would be like at that time? No, not really. Um, I think that I felt thankful that we were trusted to be a coalition partner because that's a really huge trust, is to be able to sign on the dotted line between yourselves and somebody else that you will um, support the way forward. I don't think it was easy for us, because historically there wasn't the belief that um, National would, in fact, do it for us. But um, I have to say that when I looked back over the years of the most significant policy changes that had happened. They actually had come through a national government. So that was interesting. Kōhangareo, Kura. I think that there were a number of things that um, national... Well, national never talked about it because in the end, their voting public weren't brown. Mm -hmm. So they weren't going to go out there and say, now we did this for Māori and we did that for Māori because they would have lost votes such as the nature of politics, I think, and the racism that exists in our country, sadly. Did that give you relatively free reign in your portfolios? Did National step back and say, here, Māori Party, you do what you want to do? We'll step back and be quiet about it? No. No, I don't think they ever did that. But um, basically... It was easier because we only dealt with Bill English and with John Key. So when you're only dealing with the leadership, it does make a huge difference. You only have to convince two people that this is the right thing to do. Mm. And, and I would have to say that we had a very respectful relationship. May not have agreed on everything. Um, I think we were devastated when they put the GSD up to 15% because we had no choice. You had to vote on confidence and supply. So uh, when that happened, we weren't expecting it. And it did um, 
upset us considerably. But you got some big wins that term yes. as well. One of the big ones that stands out for me was on the Auckland Super City Council. I think the original position was to support Māori seats, but Rodney Hyde opposed that. Mm. And then the Māori Party outmanoeuvred him with the independent Māori statutory board, yep. which has ended up probably more powerful yep. than two Māori seats on that council. Yep. So were there other wins like that too? Oh, I, th I think that... Um, what we had to do the whole time we were here was to position our people for particular issues. And I think that we were able to do that. I think that there were policy gains uh, that we got that we probably would never have got because they'd never been considered before. And I think about housing, um, health, uh, social, um, yeah, we got big policy gains in all of those areas. I, d I don't think we were good at talking about it because, I mean, I, I grew up being told, you know, it's like a hee-hee to crow about <laughs> how good you are. And I think that the others were similar ilk, found it difficult to talk ourselves up. You mentioned GST, uh, the rise in GST before under that national government. I wonder if you saw the opposition from Hone Harawira come in. Was he up front? with the caucus when he said, I'm straight out opposing this? Yes. Honey was always up front. Um, I have a great love for Honey. Um, we may not have agreed on absolutely everything, but it was more because of the politics of it, not because we disagreed, I don't believe, with each other about the essence of what we were saying, because there's no doubt that I agreed with a lot of what he said. You know, but in this environment... You know, you, you're virtually in a trading market. And um, he, he didn't like that and he wasn't prepared to compromise. And I actually admired that. Yeah. But politically, I think it was quite uh, damaging to us because it looked as if we were split. Mm. Was he quite hard to convince initially to come on board with the relationship with the National Party? No. Definitely not. I can say that Hone was as keen to work with National as, um, as what Matua Whatarangi... When Matua Whatarangi laid the kaupapa down, that it didn't matter who the government was, Hone absolutely accepted that because politically he was astute and he knew that if you weren't with the government, well, there's no reason to be here, actually. Do you think it was a case of Hone had an seen what that meant or hadn't realised what that meant, the sort of compromises that would have to be made, voting for GST, for example? Oh, deep down, I think he knew all right. Mm. He just wasn't prepared to do it. Mm. Which, of course, is always hard because, you know, you've got to come in here and be prepared to have one voice when you're in public Whatever you say behind the closed doors, that's another story. But um, Honey wasn't prepared to compromise, and I, I do respect that. Mm. So do you think, in the end, that split between the Māori Party and the Mana Party was almost inevitable? No, I didn't. I didn't expect it. I thought that, um, that we were all politically astute, that we understood the game plan, we realised that there would always be things that we would differ on. But I did think that we had enough respect for one another to be tight. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I was disappointed, mm. you have to say. Mm. 
Did it hurt the caucus when he wrote that op-ed in the Sunday Star Times in 2011, criticising the party? By then, I think we had come to expect that he would have a differing view and that he would possibly do that. I, I, I think that. I think that probably what, <clears throat> you know, and, and I will say this, I think the time has to come for our people to realise that at some point we have to stand on our own two feet, have faith and trust in our own kaupapa and tikanga to drive us forward, surely. And I think that that's all that's ever driven me. What you've said today, through your days growing up, through your days on youth employment schemes and getting young Māori into university, it's self-empowerment. Mm. And your career seems to have always centred about empowerment for Māori. Absolutely. When did you first start thinking about whānau water in those terms? Well, I realised when I came in here that <clears throat> I didn't need to be Einstein to think about what was important for us. All I had to think about was, what had I grown up with knowing? These people who nurtured and loved me and brought me up to be strong and independent, um, to know what was right and wrong, um, to have self-belief. Um, once, I was only in here a short time when I realised that that's what was missing, that uh, we were always um, marching to someone else's drumbeat. Mm. And it felt wrong. What were those late night negotiations and phone calls with Bill English and John Key like, trying to push Whanau Order through? Was it a tough slog? Not really, because Bill got it. Mm. I, I knew that he knew exactly what we were talking about comes from a family of 11 kids, got six of his own. So he understood that whole whānau dynamics thing. And I think also he believed that we had to stand on our own two feet. I think he did believe that. Um, with John Key, I think John was more worried about the cost and the money and what their voting public would think. Because in a way, when you're in here, everything's political. And so you are constantly thinking about, will Joe Public vote for our party at the next election if we agree to this? I think that's at the forefront of any political party's thinking, whether they admit it or not. It's, that's how it is. Mm. Was it a funny contrast for you that a Conservative like Bill English got this, got the idea of empowering Māori, but perhaps under Labour... It may have been a bit more of a paternalistic approach to final order. They would have viewed it more paternalistically. I, I, I knew when I very first came to Parliament that Bill English was an ally and a friend because he used to ring me up. He was the Minister of Health and he would ring me up and talk to me about health issues, about issues of how things could be done better for our people. He often spoke to me on those matters and I had huge respect and regard for him that he would do that. I must admit I don't think my colleagues were very impressed when they found out that, that I was having telephone conversations with him but um, you know I, I came into this game to make a difference for our people 
And if it had to come through whoever, that didn't bother me. It wasn't about me or the political party I was in. It was about getting the gains for our people. Otherwise, there seems no purpose to being here. You were Associate Minister of Health, and one of the big things that you saw through before you left Parliament was the big pie order strategy, the Māori health strategy. But another big one was the Smoke 3 by 2025. Can you walk mm. us through that one? Well, I've always been anti-smoking, and my husband was worse than I was. But um, we decided that, you know, if we couldn't do it on our own marae, you can't go out and talk to other people about it. And so we bought in that all our buildings were smoke-free. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, uh, you would go to marae, they'd smoke in the waripuni. I mean, when I think about it, I was... But, of course, we didn't know, didn't know the impact. Um, yeah, so I was really keen to push the government because what annoyed me was that I knew that they knew that the numbers of people who were impacted on by smoking, <coughs> excuse me, the numbers of people that we were losing yearly, about 5,000 a year, uh, the numbers of people who were costing the health budget hugely um, through smoking-related uh, illnesses, that it, it kind of felt as if they didn't care. Can I come back to the idea of Māori needing to stand on our own two feet. And can I ask about the Māori Party isn't in Parliament anymore. Do you think that next vehicle or that next Kaupapa Māori Party will be the Māori Party or can it be a different vehicle? Well, in the end, my view is that um, we should be strengthening our people, taking a whānau order approach to caring for ourselves so that, in a way, it doesn't matter who's in Parliament. We need to get on with it. We need to show that we can do this. And that's why I really like the commissioning agencies. I think that they take a very different approach to what the political parties of the time do on significant issues that impact on our people. And that ability to be a decision-maker over your own life, because that's really what I'm talking about, I'm not talking um, about somebody else telling us how to be and what to do. This is about us. And we need to be brave enough and strong enough uh, to stand up to any system that's in place. So in the health system, you know, we don't need to tolerate that our people die more readily than others. No, there's got to be a reason for that. And as a people, we have to start asking the questions. Families need to not be afraid to say to doctors, I am not happy with what's happened here. We've got to be, yeah, we have to be brave and strong and forthright, otherwise we're always going to be in the hands of other people. Mm. Can you talk to me about your mokos? Well, we've got 28 grands and 30 greats, so we've got heaps. Look, one more in particular I've raised. She's probably the naughtiest of all of them. Um, but however, what I love about her most is that she's completely without fear when it comes to challenging what's wrong. So she's often been in trouble at school for raising issues of racism and all of those things. But um, I think that she will be 
a great young woman. I'm waiting for the moment, but um, she is going to be great because she knows. When your mokos come to you and ask, Nan, what's your political legacy? What are you going to say to them? I hope they never ask me that question because I don't think that it is the most important question for us as Whānau. I, I would like to think that um, my grandchildren will know that it's not for me to be determining the legacy, it's for themselves. On April 24, 2019, Tariana's husband, George Hori Turia, passed away. They had been married for 58 years. He whakamaumaharatanga tēnei hōtaka ki aia. You've been listening to Mātangi Reo with Morgan Godfrey. This podcast was made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Innovation Fund. Music by Audio Network, sound recording by Craig Mullis, audio design by Reed Audio Limited, edited by Chris Anderton, Matangi Reo was commissioned by Kay Elmers for RNZ. Shannon Honui Thompson is the Kurahotu Māori. Executive producer, Carmen J. Leonard. Matangi Reo was produced and directed by Annabelle Lee Mather and Mihinarangi Forbes. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.